This program was first broadcast on Canterbury's access media station, Plains FM, and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. Welcome to The Author's Tale, where you get to listen to casual conversations with prominent New Zealand authors, produced and presented by me, Stephanie Fruin. While I'm taking a break before I present Series 2 in 2023 of The Author's Tale, I'm going to be bringing you some bonus episodes. Coming up on this episode are my conversations with Heritage Book Award winners Janet Newman and Nick Lowe. The Heritage Book Awards were held on the 20th of October 2022 at the St. Michael and All Angels Church in Christchurch and are administered by the New Zealand Society of Authors. Janet Newman won the Best Poetry Book and Nick Lowe won the Wiley Publications Award for Best Non-Fiction set in Canterbury and the west coast of the South Island. You'll also hear them give some tips of books to buy for Christmas gifts, along with their own. Don't hesitate to jump online or go to your local bookstore to purchase your own copy of their work, if not for yourself, then as a gift for someone you care about this Christmas. Please bear in mind that all of these conversations were carried out over the phone, some to the depths of the New Zealand countryside where you'll hear the pulsing of the phone line, and others are on the mobile in the breeze. I apologise in advance for the varying sound quality. My first chat is with Janet Newman, who won the Heritage Poetry Book Award for her debut collection of poetry called Unseasoned Campaigner, published by Otago University Press in 2021. I'm so (laughs) pleased to get you on, Janet, because it's always such a shame at those awards to not get all of the authors, you know, the winning authors, and it's one of those complicated things, you know, and I... I would have come, even, you know, I, I, mean, I didn't think I was going to win, but I, I was in the finals, so... Mm. But it kind of just got to the point where it was too late. Mm. Yeah, no, I'm really pleased to get you on, and, you know, and I think the thing with poetry um, books and, you know, and poets is they often um, appear to be sort of inaccessible to people. You know, people sort of think of you as being sort of um, beyond their realm of thinking. Do you, do you know what I mean? It's kind of a niche. It's surprising how many people do read poetry, though. Yeah, yeah. But I, think, I know what you mean. Yeah, yeah okay. Some people find poems. Um, I think my poems are quite accessible. Yeah, absolutely. I've read some of your poems and definitely I find them very accessible. And Curry, who judged the, the poetry section, she just thought they were fabulous. Yeah, I really. Oh, that's lovely to hear. And it was lovely to hear her comment. Yeah. And um, it was interesting to hear that she mentioned being a vegan because I, I suppose you can think, well, farming's not my thing. I'm opposed to yeah. eating meat and slaughtering animals. But that's really quite a big part of the book is the way I talk about the relationship with animals that we slaughter. Yeah. yeah. That's quite an important yeah. thing to me. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And, and that's what I thought was actually really interesting with Curry is that, yeah. Um, yeah, because she had been a vegan and she could relate to them, she could understand what you were saying, you know, and she just thought the way that you portrayed the stories, um, you know, through your poetry, just, yeah, really, really um, accessible and beautiful, I think was a word she used as well. And I would like you to think of this as a time that you can chat about your book. I mean, it's clearly it's been out now for a year. I noticed it was published in August 2021. If you can sort of describe for us, I suppose, especially for those people who physically don't have a copy in front of them or who <clears throat> perhaps wouldn't otherwise buy a, um, a poetry book, is... Just, yeah, just describe it for us. Okay, so it is in three parts, and it's a book that I wrote over a long period of time, about 10 years at least. Wow. Um, and it's not, but it wasn't, I have to say, it wasn't, I didn't set out to write a book. I was just writing a lot of poems, and I was writing poems. Um, initially, I went down to Wellington and did an undergraduate course at the Institute of Modern Letters and Poetry, mm-hmm. and it was just happened to be the year after my mother had died and my mm-hmm. dad was on his own the farm for the first time, yeah. and I started writing poems about that experience of him being in quite a different yeah. situation and my life feeling different because that constancy of the farm as it had always been, even though they were both in their 80s, they hadn't changed their life, so mm-hmm. they didn't seem old to me, yeah, yeah. and so I started writing about him and then over the period of time he he did die and then I took over the running of the Mm. farm which was a strange experience because even though it was a part of my life 
for a long time. I didn't really know what I was doing. So I'm the unseasoned campaigner of the title. Right. I'm the person who That's doesn't you. really know how to farm mm. uh, and also unseasoned at writing poetry because the both things sort of started at the same time. Wow. And my father's the seasoned campaigner who's yes. been a farmer all his life. Yes. And um, as a girl, as a daughter, you weren't taught to be the farmer, you yeah. know, you were in those days. I was going so to ask you that, siblings-wise, how many, do you have siblings? Just one sister, and so um, the two of us now own the, the farm. Fabulous. And I run it and manage it, mm. yeah, and lease my half of my sister. Mm. And so um, the book kind of um, came after, and then, I, and then I carried on at university and I completed a PhD, and I started writing, and I was looking at eco-poetry because I was interested in my relationship with the land. Yes. And so eco-poetry is poetry that um, considers the relationship between people and nature and the land and mm. the sense of belonging to the land. And yeah. so my PhD um, includes poems uh, that were written specifically to focus on that theme. And then the book came sort of came out of all these things. Um, and so it's a thing, it's what I think the difference between someone said with a poetry book, sometimes it's kind of a themed project and some, where you start off with an idea for a book and sometimes it's a mixtape. Yes, yes. <laughs> it's when you just, you've written a whole lot of poems and then you gather them together into something that becomes a book. Mm. So it was never um, envisaged until it was finished. Yeah. So it sort of organically yeah. evolved. So it's in three sections and now and the the first section focuses on my relationship, I guess, with the farm and farming, and particularly farm animals, and my mm-hmm. experiences mm-hmm. of caring for animals that are destined for slaughter because yeah. it's a beef farm. Mm-hmm. So all the animals are going to eventually go to the works and be yeah. killed and eaten. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. um, of course, you're caring for these animals and you have a, a relationship with them. I think you develop a sense of, care for them and you feel a sense of grief when yeah. they go to slaughter which might sound odd but that's I think that's a good thing yeah well it just shows your level of respect for the animal and what you what I've found with animals is um, animals are very sensitive yes. to different people they're a bit like children yeah. so um, they're not um, like a dog that can be socialized to be around anyone mm. they uh, relate to you specifically and if another person comes to the farm on a visit and yeah. you take them around, the animals yeah. behave quite differently to mm. when you're there on your own. Mm. Um, even mm. even sometimes once I went wearing white shoes on my way to town and they freaked out. You know, wow. just, they're very, wow. very sensitive to, um, to change. detail and, and people. Yeah, mm. And so mm. they build up a relationship, as my dad used to say, they trust you. And yeah. they do. They trust you over time. When they arrive, they're very scary. Yeah. They'll run away, especially yeah. these different breeds. Charolais, sometimes you can't get in the paddock. They're right down the far end. You know, yeah. they're really skinny. But after a period of time, and that's I'm gonna read a poem which is about these type of cattle, yeah. they they you can you can walk in the paddock with them and then you get to know them as sort of individually. One might come up and sniff you on the arm yeah. and, and another one never yeah. will, and that sort of thing. Yeah. And yeah. and so you rely on when you send them to the works that they don't know, but you know. And I have found that they are aware they have, of course, sentience, but they also mm. have an awareness of life and death. Yeah. And I notice that yeah. um, they will sniff out uh, where an animal's been buried, even though it might have been a year or more ago. Wow. And you would think yeah. they smell. They'll stand around that area and they'll sort of pour the ground. Oh, no. And you think, oh, they know. Mm. And Or if, if an animal had been killed in the yards, which you wouldn't do, but if no. you did, because you're an idiot, like I did once, <laughs> then um, <laughs> you, you can't get them back to go in because of the smell of the blood yes. even weeks later, yes. you know. Mm. So this poem, I tried quite a few poems to capture that sense yeah. of feeling for them but also sending them to the works. And I think this one called Drenching was perhaps the most successful mm. and I'll read that. Mm. Sure, fire So this is the opening poem of the book. So it's called Drenching. When the cattle come from the sale yards in the blue truck that clatters up the drive, they walk as in a daze. Some snatch at grass glancing through cracks in the concrete. Drench them now while they amble easily into the race. Tomorrow, stomachs full, they will gallop away because you are a stranger to them. Though in months, as each day you open gates to paddocks of fresh grass and in winter lay hay on the ground before them, they come, warm breath on your skin. See them pour the soft peat, worry the old scents where you buried the drowned steer two winters past. 
Until you send them on their way to be killed, they grant the grace of their company, draw you in with flared nostrils that pause over the bones of their dead. It's quite um, um, evocative would be the word I think I'd use for that. You know, you can really get a sense of the emotion. That's good. I was trying to, without being sentimental about it, mm. to show that you have those feelings and you mm. do enjoy their company Yeah, and you give them the best life you can for mm. the time that you have them. And I guess that's the thing, as a farmer, ultimately it's a business and you are providing a you know a service to the to the greater good to the to the community who rely on beef etc you know for their um for their well-being for their health for their nutrients for you know what i mean so you have a there's a bigger picture but it, but you know before any of that happens you are still the person in charge of that animal and the animal trusts you and that that's a huge responsibility on you and i think a lot of people would never think of farmers perhaps as feeling that or, or or actually wearing that burden? Because it is a bit of an emotional burden, isn't it? Yes, it is. I think most farmers do. And I think during mycoplasma bovis, oh, yeah. people might have seen on the news the, mm. the distress of farmers whose animals were being slaughtered. Yeah. You know, they were just so... I mean, they were losing money, yes, mm. of course, mm. but they were grieving beyond yeah. that. Generally, farmers, of course, want to do the best for their animals, but within the... There's a lot of practicality that is involved as well. Mm. So there's always um, it's a, it's a complex situation yeah. that you negotiate. Yeah, I lived in the UK when they had a terrible um, foot and mouth outbreak back in the early 2000s, uh. and it was just absolutely shocking. You would be driving on the motorway anywhere, and especially at night time, you would see the glow of the embers. You know, because the farmers were having to slaughter and then burn all, all of their, you know, their, their livestock, and the smell. You know that permeated. That would have been. It was. That would have been it terrible. Was horrendous, just horrendous. I'll never forget it. So, Janet, you're not a Cantabrian. Whereabouts are you based? I'm in Horafenua, mm. so I live at a place called Kupatoroa, which is just north of Levin. Right. Um, and it's a farming community. Yeah, I was going to say very, <laughs> very, very cow, very cow cocky up there is what you know. My family. Very yes. <laughs> Yeah, definitely, and that's what, yeah, cow cocky, that's yeah. the word you don't hear very often anymore. No, you don't, yeah, do you? But up on a, <laughs> a, yeah. So when I was brought up here, um, the dairy farm was 70 cows on 60 acres. Wow. Now you've probably one of the smaller farms might be, you know, 400 cows yeah. on 500 acres. So wow. it's completely changed. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely, completely changed. So, um, so look, going back to your to your wonderful book, you've got it into three sections. So, let's have a chat about the next section. So, the next section is really um, probably the poems that were probably written earlier because they focus on on my dad and um, on his life as a farmer, and also he was a World War Two veteran, which was really a big part of my life because he was always talking about the war, and he almost seemed to me to treat the farm like a war zone. <laughs> he would go off and he would be fighting rabbits and yes. weeds and drought. Mm. And he, because he grew up during that time when farming was so physical, it just relied on physical labour. You know, it yes. wasn't industrialised like it is now and it was usually one man and, and one farm. Mm. And I say it was the man. And um, he did everything himself and mm. everything on a shoestring. Yes. And so um, he had this really kind of tough, blunt exterior I think that I as a child you know you're quite scared of him in some ways because mm. he'd be very stern but at, at the other side of him he seemed to have a really tender heart mm. um, just the poem I'm going to read is about rabbits because rabbits were a thing that were such a pest and Dreadful. he would go around yeah. getting the dog digging out the burrows and yep. swearing about these rabbits oh, yeah. all the time and yet, yet we had pet rabbits you know he yeah. would occasionally bring one home and he would just play with and love these, and he, I could see that he recognised that they were like a child would mm. recognise that they were cute mm. little animals, and he knew that we knew that, yeah. and it almost felt like his, his, um, ex, his, he had developed such a hard personality and exterior through his life experiences, mm. you know, through the war yeah. and through the farming, and yet underneath that was this sort of tender heart. Mm. So the poem's called Tender, and um, a. A cat, of course, is, is the baby rabbit. Um, and because sometimes a rabbit will not run, they just freeze yeah, in the paddock yeah, if yeah. there's danger. 
But sometimes um, a, a dog or a person could just pick mm. up a rabbit out yes. of the paddock when it freezes and it won't run. Yeah, yeah. So that's um, what's happening in this mm. time. And also rabbits were eaten um, mm. if they were in good, good. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes, they would be. Yeah, and they were, um, although sometimes we weren't told they were rabbits. Right. If we had it was chicken. <laughs> this was tender. Mm. When my father said the rabbit was tough, my mother promised to boil it longer. Ashamed to waste good meat. He told my sister it was chicken. Said our pet lambs went back to their mothers. Every time he found a burrow, he tramped to the shed for the spade, a length of chicken wire, swearing like sergeant. He would always come in from the paddock, shoveling the shovel or the grubber, except the day he lifted from his pocket the kit, spared from the hay mower by his Geneva Convention, and held it out to me in cupped palms as trembling proof of his boyhood. Wow. Another one. Another one that you can totally feel the emotion. You can just picture it. Completely picture it. So um, the third part of your book? So the third part is um, sort of moving on from him dying and um, me taking over the farm. And there's some poems in here about my own children growing up and leaving home Mm. and um, the feeling of the sort of the empty nest. and um, But recognising, I think, that the farm is always embedded with the memories of my childhood mm. and of him and my mother. And also that wider picture that, you know, especially looking at the land from an ecological perspective, that the farm, that we've only had it for a short time, that it's, before that it was, prime, it was forest and after that it was probably, um, it was, land that belonged to Tangatenua and, you know, it has a history of dispossession. So Mm. there's all those roots in the land and it's all complicated and, you know, I have huge respect for my ancestors who worked so hard to break it into farmland. Yes. But then, of course, there was so much loss of cultural loss and environmental loss in that process. That has to be acknowledged and really can't be reconciled. No. You, no, can't, you, you just have to, to acknowledge it. Mm. But the poem I was going to read was when I, I think it was probably about after 10 years after Dad had died that I thought, look, I've been writing these poems for 10 years. I'm going to stop now and write about <laughs> something else. And this is going to be the last one. Yeah. And I think it was when I wrote this one that I kind of realized that even though I was writing about him, I was kind of writing about my own life yes. because mm. the way his life had influenced mine mm. and how perhaps I'd developed some resilience as a result of mm. his hard life, he always um, put an orange in our stocking at Christmas time. Yeah. It was always yeah. at the bottom because he said when he was a kid, oranges were imported. They were really expensive and you could only have one at Christmas and yes. it was such a treat. Yes, and we just thought, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and we just put it back in the fruit bowl and thought, oh, an orange. But I guess it did remind me that I was lucky to have yeah. all those presents. It was meant yeah. to be a symbol of, yeah. of you know, how mm. he was remembering his childhood and how different mine was from his. Mm. So this is called There Comes a Time. There comes a time to cut down the last windbreak macrocarpa, trunk embedded with wire and the staples he hammered in. He put an orange in my stocking every year. Ghosts of his boyhood was out. After mum died, he was a ghost of himself but I digress. Straining that fence, he was at his best, sure as a stay, strong as wind, straight to the point, his anger casual as a handshake. When he slit a sheep's throat, he skewed its neck against bare shins. He took me to Seed and Grain Co. in my mini-dress to drink beer with men on hay bales, sent me down the cattle track where cold wind cradled my skin, said, don't let it beat you, as though standing unflinching was enough to stop a steer ten times my weight, and it was. The thing that strikes me with your book is, I think, and I, you know, correct me if you think I'm wrong, but it really strikes me that it is sort of the cycle of life, you know, on the farm with your farm animals, but also the people who have walked on that land before you and what they've left behind, what you've picked up, taken through to your your life and then your own children, you know. And so you've you've gone through, you know, all the phases that have, you know, that you've witnessed, I suppose, on that land, um, which in a way is, I suppose, a, a metaphor for everybody's 
Yeah, and I suppose it um, shows that how important place is to people. Yeah, it can be really significant in people's lives. Yeah, mm. yeah. I mean, in this case, it's it's my farm, mm. but to mm. other people, it might be another place that'll have the same sort of significance, and it really is a part of your life. Absolutely, and I think so. Just thinking about the whole, you know, the poetry book genre, um, and yours with regards to the Heritage Book Awards, which of course is why I'm why I'm ringing you because you were the winner. So, and I have I don't think I've even said congratulations for that. I know we chatted about it to start off with, but I don't actually think I said the word congratulations. So, look, well done with winning the best poetry book for that. But you know, the Heritage Book Awards is obviously is all about New Zealand heritage and books that celebrate our heritage and um, share the stories. So how do you think, where do you think your book fits in with the New Zealand heritage narrative, I suppose? Well, it's a book about farming, which is a poetry book about farming, which is a little bit um, unusual, although it follows on from poems by, say, Ruth Dallas, yeah. who was writing in the 40s and 50s, mm. and she had quite a different view of farming. She perceived farming to be quite a pastoral, lovely, ideal environment, yeah. and I use her poems, lines from her poems, as epigrams that a couple of mine, especially mm. the one ones about microplasma bovis, which mm. really changed farming yes. here from that lovely idea that you can just walk on the farm and pat the animals mm. to the fact that it's like a, um, you know, you have to be aware of these um, yeah. viruses and mm. bug bacteria and you can't just walk on and pet animals anymore no. and no. you have to treat it as a place that um, requires certain protocols before you go on to farm. Mm. Mm. Um, so I guess it's reflecting those changes in farming and but joining that heritage, there are a lot of poem, poets um, like Ted Hughes, the English yep. poet, had yes. a sheep farm and wrote about mm. farming. Mm. Um, John Clare back in the 18th century yes. was a farm labourer. Mm. And But also I feel quite a connection with him because he had such a connection with the land yeah. and, and wrote about how he felt mm. so he lost his sense of self when yeah. the um, common land was privatised for farming. Yeah, yeah. So the connection with the land goes through. But in terms of New Zealand heritage, yeah, I think farming is, um, and as you said, the or the family farm was such an important part of mm. New Zealand, especially in the 40s and 50s. Mm. And um, that's kind of changed now to much bigger enterprises. Mm, mm. And I think as well, I think more and more people who would traditionally not have noticed farming or noticed, um, you know, the repercussions of farming and how it is done are perhaps a little bit more aware these days just the whole climate change issue and and with a lot, a lot of, you know, government policy is centred around agricultural practice and that kind of a thing. So people are taking more of an interest, I suppose, in what actually happens out in the paddock that they never used to think about. Um, and I think your book will be one of those books that, you know, in however many years, time people will pick up and, and you've given them, you've provided them with a slice of life um, you know, over a series of years of what the farming practices were like in this period of time and then you know, in however many years time, 50, 100 years time, people will be reading that book and they'll be going, oh gosh haven't things changed or maybe things haven't changed so much you know, so you're providing yeah, a real we, insight yeah. into life at you know at the moment. Yeah, I think so, and I mm. think the relationship with animals is quite central to Huge. my book. And I feel that mm. as the uh, agriculture does become more intensified, we're we're sort of losing that yeah. connection, perhaps yeah. that we had with them in the past. Mm. I think you're right. And so um, it's coming up to Christmas time. But I would like to think that there'll be people who choose to buy a poetry book this year and give it as a gift. Um, I, you know, I did say the Night of the Heritage Awards, if, you're not, if, if you don't think of anyone to give a gift to, then maybe just buy it for yourself as a gift. Um, so but who would you imagine would get a lot out of your book? Yeah, well, it's interesting because you might say farming people, but then it's interesting how many people have said to me that they've enjoyed it and they're not from a farming Mm. background, but maybe they have someone in their family who was, maybe a grandparent or... um, But not any... I mean, there's um, poets like... um, So Rebecca Hawkes in Wellington Mm. who comes from a farm in Canterbury and she's she's written a book called Meat Lovers. And... um, 
you know, she said she's enjoyed this book too mm. because I suppose we have the farming connection even though we, she's not farming now. So yeah. um, it, it has probably a wide appeal. Also, anyone who, um, anyone whose dad was um, in, in a war yes. or has that dad in their family, mm. they, they will relate to some of this, um, yeah. the, the way that people probably tend to lighten their memories mm. of war when they talk about it, but you know that underneath yeah. it there's a lot of trauma. But also I reckon um, for people who who are younger and are taking an interest in what is going on around them and how people use the land and what is coming up on the horizon, it would be really good for any of those people to um, pick up a book and have a read and get a feel for where the agricultural community sort of is coming from, you know? Yes, that's right. And perhaps to sort of um, understand some of the complexities around farming Huge and the environment. Yeah. And um, without taking really kind of putting taking sides, some of my poems are just pointing out those yeah. complexities and those issues that are involved. Yeah, yeah a- absolutely. Definitely. Now, and if you were to give your book to, as a gift to someone and you were to give it as a gift with another book, so you're giving two books, what would be the complementary book that you'd, you'd give alongside your own? What could you recommend? I think I've already mentioned it. I'd, I'd pair it with Rebecca Hawke's Meat Lovers, which is a fabulous, fabulous book. Um, yeah, which is about it's not about meat and it's about lovers. Wonderful. Excellent. <laughs> well, that just sounds wonderful. Thank you so much, Jan. I've really enjoyed chatting with you today. It's been great to get well, thanks, that, that deeper insight into your book. And look, congratulations again on your win. And um, what are you working on next? Um, I'm just um, looking at some more poems. I have, I have plenty more poems, and so it's a matter of um, gathering them into another. It's another mixed tape, really, yeah, yeah. <laughs> gathering them to another book form. Yeah. Fabulous, fabulous. Well, look, all the very, very best with that, and you have a great day. And I have loved thank chatting you. with you, and all the very best with your book. Okay, thanks very much, Stephanie. Right. Bye. See you later. Bye bye. Coming up is my chat with Nick Lowe, the author of Uprising, which won the Wiley Publications Award. Uprising was published by Text Publishing in 2021. First of all, Nick, congratulations on the Wiley Publications Award win for the Heritage Awards with your book Uprising. How did that feel? Thank you. It's oh, just fantastic. I actually didn't know the prize existed until I won it. Yeah, um, I know. It, it was a lovely surprise. I was yeah. there because I was uh, runner-up in the non-fiction category. Exactly, and then yeah. To find out, yeah, so no, just delighted, delighted to pick up that Wiley Prize as well. Yeah, no, it's, it's, a, it's a nice award because it focuses on, you know, it's for the book, call it West Coast Canterbury Focus, and clearly they thought yours was by far the best. And as you said, you were also the runner-up to the non-fiction award, which was pretty fabulous as well. Yes, it's always lovely to mm. just get those little nods, bit of, a bit of a sense that people are reading, people are appreciating, um, you know, I spent a a fair whack of time out there in the hills yeah. uh, wandering around and yeah. a fair whack of time in the archives and yep. interviewing various of our people for the project. So it's yeah. Yeah, lovely to get that recognition yeah, so look, from the writing world as well. Yeah, absolutely. So look, tell us a little bit about the project so that in a nutshell people get an idea and a sense of what your book is about. Absolutely. The book is a an adventure into the landscapes and also the history of Kateriteri of Te Moana, of the Southern Alps. It's uh, I suppose I've been I've really for a long time known our histories and stories as being Naitahu and knowing our connections to the coast. Uh, my ancestors are from uh, Murihiku, from the very south of Te Waipounamu. And I never really knew anything about our connection with the mountains. But on my dad's side, we're mountain people where, uh, you know, there's, a, there's generations of mountain climbers wow. and trampers and people who just love the hills. We've yes. got a long history as far as Pākehā uh, history goes in this country of really being in those mountains. And mm. so I sort of got curious, um, you know, were there Ngaitahu stories? Was there history that I could chase down? And I started having some conversations with a few of our elders, a few of our archival experts. And the thing that really switched me on to it was going and visiting um, – one of our key people in this space, Takare Norton, who's the head archivist at Naitahu. And I said to him, you know, bro, were there any trails through the mountains? You know, were there stories in the, in the inland high country? And he, says, and he sort of pulls me into his office and he 
fires up his computer and shows me on these screens a map of Te Waipounamu, but uh, in covered in place names, thousands and thousands of place names, and not a single one of them in English. Wow. It's a, a, a remarkable project. It's now some of it's now public under yep. the name of Kahuru uh, Manu. Yes. Um, and it's yeah, it's a digital atlas, um, but showing pre-European New Zealand, pre-European Te Waipounamu. Wow. And amongst those thousands and thousands of place names, you know, each of those names has a story behind it, a history behind it. There are ancestors associated with so many of those places. And then there were also these green lines snaking their way across the Alps. There would have been, you know, more than a dozen different routes through the Alps. And I thought, oh my gosh, you know, could I use this map to navigate? Obviously, this is a map of our pre-European landscape. But what would happen if I followed this map today? Could I kind of walk my way back into the past? So the idea was to, yeah, well, I just wanted to, take all that research that other people had done, all that knowledge that was out there and just take it for a walk, you know, yeah. see what happened when I read those stories in the places where they happened. I followed those ancestors across those trails that they walked. Mm. So the book's sort of an invitation to the reader to come with me. I'll yeah. be your tour guide. Let's go on a journey. Let's go tramping in the Alps yep. and see if we can walk our way back in time. So let's just pause it ever so slightly because for our international listeners and are unaware, perhaps, that there is an indigenous population here in New Zealand, the Māori population, who were here long before the Europeans. They were—I'm um, just trying to give them a bit of a sense of that there was more <laughs> than more than one tribe um, in the country, and your particular tribe was Naitahu that your ancestors yeah. came from. And so you are speaking about the Naitahu movements across the, the South Island of the country and where they yes. went. So, because we, we have quite a few international listeners and... Um, and so for them, to give them an idea that the, the southern part of New Zealand, the southern island, is separated by this wonderful stretch of mountain range called, the, well, we call it the Southern Alps, but the Māori call it... Teri Teri o te Moana. Yeah. Yeah, and it's, it, it's a sort of 500 kilometres of shark's teeth. Yes. It's uh, significantly bigger than the European Alps. Um, there are a lot of mountains there, mm. and it's yeah, it's such it's the defining feature of our landscape. And it, yeah, for the longest time, it was it was kind of thought of as wilderness. You know, these are this is an untouched virgin land. And so, what I guess the research that I did, the elders that I spoke with, the manuscripts that I was pointed towards, they all tell a very different story. This this land, those mountains were named, were storied, uh, full of history. Yes. And the thing that um, a lot of people also don't appreciate when they come here is when you go into those mountains, a lot of them have a, a European idea of what a mountain range is like, but those mountains are very, very different. They are, they're, they're quite, um, you've got to be quite intrepid, don't you, to, to take on that kind of a journey from one side to the other. Yeah, well, it's, it's one of the, I suppose I've had two really interesting reactions to this book. Um, and, you know, in terms of how intrepid you have to be in the mountains, a lot of people read my book and when they meet me or they send me an email, they say, you're crazy. <laughs> like, that's a really common reaction. You're like, yep. you're, you're bonkers. You're completely <laughs> mad. I, I did end up getting myself into some fairly hairy situations. Oh. I went a few places I potentially shouldn't have. Um, and so people are like, oh my gosh, you're, you, you know, you're a madman for, for putting yourself in that situation. But the other side of it was that what at the start of the project was really quite a daunting task, you know, to walk from one side of the island to the other, um, to cross those mountains, you know, all the planning, the preparation, the fitness, the gear. Um, and it, it felt like a big undertaking. But by the end of the project, I'd done something like 15 different crossings of wow. the mountains. And wow. it felt like no big deal. It was really nothing i was yeah. the the west coast was just over that range and yes. you know a couple of days or well, maybe more than a couple but about you know four or five days walk yes you're on the other side of the oh my, island oh You've my goodness the so so when we have our almighty earthquake that they're telling us we're going to have you know the eight pointer strikes and you happen to be you've gone on holiday to the west coast or whatever and you need to get back across you go no worry no no problem no problem Absolutely. We'll, just, we'll just walk it guys i know exactly That's where to go we just We'll pop across. Well, and that was the thing. You know, so many of those early accounts, the ancestors were like, I, I'm just going to pop over to Christchurch to deliver some mail. And 
you know, what was seen as this insurmountable barrier, four yeah. days later, boom, or yeah. on the other side. Yeah, and I guess the thing that also perhaps kept you going is the knowledge that, yes, for you, coming from a modern perspective of, oh my goodness, we're so used to having a road, a vehicle, you know, lighting, you know, all the modern sort of mm. accoutrements of, to get us from A to B. But I guess thinking to yourself, hang on a minute, when they did this, however many hundreds of years ago, they had none of that. So if they can do it with no. none of that, then I can <laughs> sure as anything do it now with the help of walking sticks, modern pack, modern modern um, footwear, you know. So, you know, isn't it, you know, I even consider, you know, my ancestors when they set sail on a, on a ship for months at a time, I think I could never do that. You know, and you're, here mm. you are thinking, wow, how did they get from one side to the other? Well, they just did. That's it. I remember this wonderful moment where I was um, following the path of an ancestress named Rodeka. Yes. And she's credited as being the first woman, the first person, the first human to cross the Alps. Mm. And so she's sort of an origin story for us. And I was retracing her route. And up on just uh, on the West Coast side, I came across these two hunters. And, and the guy in front was this really gregarious, eccentric fellow. He, he turned out he was a journalist. He was wearing a kind of Hunter S. Thompson get-up kind of floral <laughs> shirt, and he had a rifle slung over his shoulder, big sunglasses. And, and you know, we're in the middle of nowhere. There's, there's no, no one around. It's just mountains, and we yeah. kind of come across each other. And as you do, you stop on the trail, you have a chat, and I tell him what I'm doing. I'm like, I'm following the route of this woman who came through here hundreds of years ago. And he's like, okay, that sounds interesting but slightly weird um, and then I sort of told her this I told him the story you know she came this way she went up there and I pointed out her route and he was dumbstruck he was just like but hang on a minute she wouldn't have had boots she wouldn't have had a raincoat she wouldn't have had and and he was really impressed and kind of and and, and also but then I was able to explain to him well she actually you know she had paraira she had these really tough woven sandals yes. and the materials you need to make a new pair are right the way along the trail. Mm-hmm. So they start wearing out. You just stop and weave yourself a, a new pair. Absolutely. She, yep. she had gaiters. She had a, a thatched rain cake, which is actually uh, completely waterproof. Like they're wow. basically made out of waterproof tussock. Wow. Um, dog, you know, dogskin cloak. Yeah. Um, so there was, there was definitely stuff around that would have made a difference. Yeah. Um, you know, that would have helped her out. She wasn't just wandering alone. Yeah. Uh, Wearing a loincloth. <laughs> no, exa- well, that's exactly right. People have the wrong idea, don't they? So you do your 15 trails, so I'm looking at it now. Well, it's, it's, it's divided into chapters in the end. I didn't end up putting all of the walks in. Some of them were really uneventful. Yep. Um, I, I went from A to B and saw little along the way. Yes. Um, others were just a little bit too complicated. You know, a lot of this gets into... Uh, some pretty deep tribal history and also some tribal politics. Um, you know, I had a lot of conversations around the spiritual aspect of mm. the mountains, mm. and that's something that I guess is a very different way to think about it compared yeah. to a, a European tradition. But mm. we see those mountains as ancestors. We see them as our, our yes. direct relations, and and a lot of them have a significant tapu, a, a, mm. a sacredness, a spiritual power to mm. them. And so the conversations I had and the journeys that I did that were more focused on that, they didn't end up in the book. You know, that's that's internal knowledge for us. Um, but yeah. I guess what I did end up putting in the book, I guess, was a kind of a, a snapshot of some of the different ways of seeing and being in the mountains yes. and, and a, a chance for readers to, you know, if, if any of your listeners out there who are international ever yeah. have had a dream of coming to New Zealand and, you know, getting into the outdoors, the book is a great companion for that. I've had lots of people Absolutely. email me saying, you know, I've been out there tramping and I've used your book as a guidebook. Fabulous. Um, Fabulous. So, yeah. And do you know thing I love as well about your book? Is you've got a notes at the beginning, giving everyone an idea of mm-hmm. what, how, to, how to pronounce um, the, mm-hmm. the Māori words. And you've got a, an idea mm-hmm. of sort of, sort of the, the history and the heritage, I suppose. And in the back, you've got a lot of notes explaining things. So it's not like sometimes you pick up a book which is foreign to, to you and it is really hard to get your head into it completely because you don't actually understand mm. the background or you don't mm. understand the language enough. But I think what you've done is you've, you have provided – a companion, basically, like you said, a, a travelling companion for these hikers, trampers, walkers to actually understand completely um, what you've done, the journeys well, that you have I taken. It really helped having an Australian publisher. Um, 
I, my publisher is based in Melbourne. Yes. And because I lived over there for many years and I sent him a first draft and he sent it back and he said, there's something good here, but I am, I think the word bamboozled yeah. Um, yeah. was what sprang to mind. Yeah. And so I, I really recognized at that point for international readers, for Australian yes. readers, for anyone further afield. I Absolutely. did have to do that work to kind of bring mm. people on the journey with me. I also wanted to make it accessible in terms of making it an, an, an adventure story. So, yes. um, you know, you, you you might have noticed there's a bit of a romance narrative running through it. Yeah. Um, there's a, there's a, a woman that I met at the very start yeah. of the process of doing these walks who I thought was just going to sort of slow me down and it was all a bit random. <laughs> and um, I, won't, I won't reveal what happens, but you no. can probably guess. Wonderful. Um, wonderful. Yes. Yeah. No, that's wonderful. Now, Nick, the title, Uprising, I'm guessing there was more than the, one thought behind that. There are. There are several thoughts behind that. So in a literal sense, the uprising is just that meeting of the tectonic plates that are pushing yeah. our Alps further and further up. It's also, I guess, a reference to that, the, the grinding forces of those two cultures coming together. So, yeah. you know, the book very much talks about how Māori understood the land, how our ancestors from Europe and from England came to New Zealand and their understanding of the land. And what happens when those two things collide? Yes. You know, virgin wilderness yes. versus your ancestors. Mm. Yeah. Um, so the book really does touch on, I guess, that history. Yeah. Um, but then the third sense of uprising was... The fact that my tahu, so the tribe that I belong to, has gone from in the 1860s, 1870s, 1880s to being, you know, there were there were around 2,000 people who were willing to say that they were my tahu at that point. It's mm-hmm. a very small number. Yeah. And we were essentially landless. We mm. went from having the, yes. almost the entirety of Te Waipaunami yes. um, to, you know, tens of millions of acres. Yeah. And to being effectively landless, yeah. despite having signed contracts mm-hmm. that guaranteed us that we could reserve from sale huge areas of yeah, land. It it's never just, happened. Yeah, shameful. Yep. Yeah. So the uprising, I guess, is a reference to the fact that Ngaitahu today, through, after 170 years of pushing and fighting in the courts, through parliament, uh, through all the different forms of culture, mm. have been advocating for justice and yep. in, in the late 90s reached a settlement with the government where the government admitted the harm that had been done, the wrongs that had been done. And yeah. whilst the, the redress, the compensation for that historical theft and the dishonouring of contracts, the breaching of the law, uh, amounted to less than 1% of what was taken and what was owed mm. from that small base, uh, Ngaitahu has grown that into assets. I think we're, we're around the $2 billion mark now. Oh, yeah, it's um, pretty impressive. So that, that's it. So the iwi is really on the up. There's a cultural Absolutely. renaissance mm. happening as a basis of having that financial and economic base. Yeah. Um, so I guess the book is also celebrating that. It's celebrating mm. all the ways that we're getting back out into the landscape, yeah. reclaiming those histories, mm. reclaiming those names. That's fabulous. If you were to give your book as a Christmas gift to someone, who do you think would be the perfect person to be buying it for? Because, you know, we're heading well, into Christmas. We sure are. I've had so many people tell me they bought this book for the men in their life. Yep. So, because it's, you know, it's a mountain book. It's got a picture of my brother and a mate uh, in full mountaineering gear walking in the Southern Alps it's across beautiful. the snow and the ice. That photo um, is stunning. A, it's, um, it's a, yeah, it sort of captures that feeling of, you know, potential of going there into these beautiful landscapes. So, you know, it's a journey. It's a chance to go do some armchair mountain climbing, come and, come on an expedition to not climb Aoraki to go most of the way to the top of our very highest peak in the country uh, and then choose to turn back. Um, But yeah, with that, with all that history in there as well, Mm. it's been something that's appealed to a lot of people who, yeah, they know that their partners and friends, particularly male partners and friends who are not necessarily super keen readers, the book is accessible, the book is really, really readable, um, but also just full of those juicy stories. Yeah, totally. Really engaging. And another quick question for you. If you were to give it to someone as a gift, you were to be personally give it a, you know, to give it as a gift, but you were to partner it with another book, not one of your own, um, what book would it be? Oh, that's a great question. I think I'd probably go for Re- one of Rebecca Solnit's books. Mm-hmm. So she has written some fabulous uh, material about walking and its relationship to place and belonging and ownership. Um, you know, she has such a yes. lucid way of understanding what at face value are quite simple things, walking, you know, going yeah. from A to B. But, you know, her books like Wanderlust or 
uh, a field guide to getting lost, I think it's called, um, were really informative for me. Um, or, or I'd say the other one I'd say is partner with Robert McFarland's Mountains of the Mind. Fabulous. Wow. Yeah. yeah. That's a wonderful book about, yeah, why do we climb? Why do we go into the mountains? Yeah. That book was part of the inspiration for writing my book because uh, he writes about mountains, but yeah. from a very, very Eurocentric point of view. You know, he goes to the sacred mountains in Tibet or China yes. and he talks to an American about it. He talks Fabulous. to an Englishman about it. So oh, thought, well, there's no indigenous voice in mm. this space saying, well, what do these mountains mean to us? Yeah. So the two would make yeah. a nice pairing. Yeah. Wow. They, yeah, they would make a great pairing, wouldn't they? Well, look, it has been fabulous talking to you about your book. I am just thrilled to bits for your win. And um, here's hoping that you, you know, excels really well. That's the, ultimately what, what, a, what a writer would love is that other people would get to yes. enjoy your work and get something out of it. And yes. they will if they, you know, take the time to pick it up, purchase it and, you know, put it under the Christmas tree for someone, they'll get a lot out of it. You know, it's fabulous. Thank you so much for your time. Oh, my absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. You're very welcome. Good luck. Thanks, you too. Bye. We're going to end this segment by having a listen to Nick Lowe reading an extract from his book, Uprising, that he read at the New Zealand Heritage Book Awards. These places. I'm going to read you a little extract from an expedition that I mounted to not climb Aoraki. As you all know, those of us who are ngaitahu, we do not set foot on top of our sacred mocha. Um, So this is uh, an expression of that. Midnight came too soon. Alarms cut us from sleep, and we rolled from our bunks straight into our boots and drank brutal coffee by head torch with adrenaline fizzing in our guts. Half an hour after opening our eyes, the four of us stood ready outside Plateau Hut beneath a wild blaze of stars. South, towards the pole, a vast emptiness blotted the Milky Way. I looked up at that pyramid of darkness, blacker than night, and quietly greeted the mountain. Two shooting stars, one after the other, zipped towards the horizon only to be extinguished by the mountain's bulk. Aoraki was a mass of rock and ice, an ancestor and a god. Uh, guys... Can we take a moment, I asked, feeling a little self-conscious. Mountaineers are not a particularly spiritual lot. The others gathered round and switched off their lights. There was an old Naitahu chant about Aoraki that I wanted to share with them and with the mountain. In Māori, I told Aoraki who we were and why we had come. And then the old chant rang softly in the emptiness of the Grand Plateau. Nā tāo ko tāo tūro, tāna ko tāo mārama. The chant comes from Matiaha Teramorehu, the chief who wrote the 1849 letter of protest to Lieutenant Governor Eyre that began Te Karemi, the Ngaitahu claim, and it contains our creation story. It begins in pure blackness, with the many voids, with a womb of darkness. From the void emerges Maku, moisture, who couples with the long unbroken horizon to give birth to Raki, the Sky Father. Raki couples with his first wife, Pokuharua Te Po, who is the breath of life in the womb of darkness. And she gives birth to Aoraki. So the highest peak in New Zealand is the firstborn son of the sky. Life and weather and land flow from his shoulders. He is our oldest and most sacred ancestor and the symbol of the tribe. Over the century and a half, fight for justice, the return and renaming of Aoraki became central to the restoration of the tribe's mana. Ngaitahu's best-known proverb says that we will bow our heads only to Aoraki. And the most sacred part of Aoraki is his head. No one should touch the tapu head of a chief. But on this crisp mid-December night, we were setting out in the footsteps of our European forebears. They climbed Mount Cook with axe and rope intent on planting their boots on top. Aoraki was renamed Mount Cook after Captain James Cook, spearhead of British exploration, later colonisation in the South Pacific. And the peak's mile-long summit ridge have drawn generations of climbers. From the 1880s, dozens of attempts saw parties get within a few hundred metres of the summit, only to be forced back by darkness or storms. Now, around 150 people climb the mountain each year. Aoraki slash Mount Cook, an ancestor to bow your head to, 
a peak to climb. Both impulses were in my blood. Ko auraki me raka mamao tana a tāwhiri a mātia, ko tūtaraki whānoa uira ki te maha nui a Māui ki tāo takata tihe mauri ora. At the end of the chant, we stood focused and quiet in the dark. It was the last time that we would be still for the next 18 or so hours. The others were gunning for the climber's summit, a few steps short of the highest point. This is where Ngaitahu asks mountaineers to stop. I wanted to attempt a different type of mountaineering. My plan was to go most of the way up, but at some point, deliberately and perhaps perversely, to turn back. I wanted to pay my respects to the ancestor, to speak aloud some of our Auraki traditions, and also to honour my Pākehā climbing family, who love the mountain as well. I wasn't sure where I would force myself to turn around. I felt the usual thrill of anticipation at setting out on a climb, and underneath that, a thin, bright shaft of fear. Since an avalanche in the godly, I'd become mildly paranoid in loose snow conditions on exposed grounds. I wasn't looking forward to descending the Linda shelf. And I still didn't know what to believe about signs and omens and auraki as a centre of spiritual power. Should I be here at all? Some of my elders had said yes, others said no. I wasn't sure where I stood, or rather where I should stand. The four of us nodded to each other. It was time to go. Kia ora. Thank you for listening to The Author's Tale. I hope you've really enjoyed listening to my conversations with the award winners from the Heritage Book Awards, and I hope you've also gotten some really good ideas for Christmas gifts. If you'd like to hear the full recording of the Heritage Book Awards, you can do so via the Plains FM website at plainsfm.org.nz and search under Author's Tale, or you can find a link on the New Zealand Society of Authors webpage at authors.org.nz. If you want to hear more conversations with fabulous New Zealand authors, have a listen to series one of The Author's Tale, which you can find by searching The Author's Tale on pretty much any podcast platform. If you want to offer feedback, author suggestions or sponsorship of The Author's Tale, you can contact me at theauthorstale.nz at yahoo.com. I'll be back in 2023 with series two, but until then, don't forget to subscribe for any bonus episodes like this one. Until then, thank you for listening.